With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This episode of This is Success is brought to you by Impact, transforming how enterprises grow revenue through partnerships. From Business Insider, this is success. I'm Rich Filoni. 15 years ago, designer Alexander Wang was a rising star in the New York fashion world. At just 20 years old, he dropped out of Parsons School of Design to start his own label. Now, at 35, Wang has built that label into a global brand. He's shown more than 50 collections, including his most recent one at New York's Rockefeller Center in May. But for Wang, Having ownership over his brand means thinking a lot about what happens off the runway. I always really think about the business aspect tied into the creative decisions. You know, I always say to my team, you know, we, as a brand and in our culture, we always try to apply creative thinking to business decisions and business acumen to kind of creative, you know, process. Wang is the son of Taiwanese immigrants. He grew up in San Francisco, where his parents built a successful plastics manufacturing business. I definitely come from a family that is very entrepreneurial in spirit. And I think I just always witnessed and watched my family, you know, be in, you know, in business together, but also how they thought about, you know, business and how they thought about creating a, a better life for their family. And I think inherently that must have just, you know, rubbed off on me. <laughs> and was it expected of their kids to go into the business as well? You know, definitely there was the opportunity that my mom wanted to, you know, save, you know, the business that she created in California for, you know, either myself or my brother. And, you know, I told her very early on that it wasn't for me. You know, I was very, very early on determined to work uh, in fashion. I wanted to work in fashion when I was very, very young. And I, I knew exactly that was what I wanted. You knew that yeah. from being a kid? You know, I remember my mom would, like, take me to hair salons when I was really young. And I'd always want to go with her shopping. And, you know, I remember, like, ripping out pages at in magazines when I'd waiting for her at the hair salon. And she'd be like, why are you, like, ripping out pages from a magazine and, like, you know, <laughs> taking them? And this was when I was probably, like, seven, eight years old. And I think just just started kind of creating this personal desire and learning and educating myself on what this industry was all about and this idea of creating. And I think one thing led to another, you know, my, I started just kind of going into her closet, taking apart her clothes, which she wasn't very happy <laughs> about and buying scraps of fabric and started just, you know, putting things together and sewing on my own, teaching myself how to sew. And I started working when I was 15 at a painting studio, like a ceramic painting studio. Uh, and then I 
because I came from boarding school, you know, I was very used to being independent and kind of traveling on my own and being on my own. So, you know, I signed up for all of these summer programs, both in London and Los Angeles, that I would just kind of go over the summer and take these fashion courses. But I knew very early on that I also my end game was going to be end up in New York. You know, I, my goal was always to end up in New York. I knew that was where I had to be in order to really, you know, succeed in this industry. And uh, I got into Parsons. I moved here, you know, over the summer. And immediately, like, the summer that I moved here, I took on uh, a retail job, an internship, and then started school. And so I kind of did all three at the same time because I was just so excited and ambitious to kind of just get my hands dirty. It was after sophomore year when you decided to drop out. Yeah. How did you decide that? So I was interning at Teen Vogue at the time, mm-hmm. and which was my second internship. My first internship was at Marc Jacobs, which was a dream come true for me, you know, coming into New York, being 18 years old. And uh, I remember Teen Vogue was just getting started at the time. And uh, so they were sharing a lot of the same resources as Vogue, you know, stylists and editors, et cetera. And I had, my job was to really call in all the clothes for the shoots. And the editors, of course, you know, they at Vogue, they expect to get what they want, you know, at any time of the day. And a lot of the brands, the more kind of designer brands that they were used to working with, weren't willing to send clothes for the Teen Vogue magazine because they felt like because of price point, because of the audience, it wasn't right. So there was this big kind of discrepancy between what, what image the magazine wanted to portray and what the brands felt like was appropriate. And I just remember at the time um, I went to my editor and I said, you know, like, what do you think if I like created this? You know, I feel like there's an opportunity in kind of very, you know, design led, integrity driven product that, you know, as at a more accessible price point. And she set me up with um, or introduced me to, I'm sorry, uh, a showroom that she said, you know, you should go speak to the showroom. Maybe they can kind of help, you know, kind of walk you through a bit of your ideas. So I went to this showroom and I kind of talked to them about this idea that I had in starting my own line and kind of what segment and category I wanted to go into and price point. And they were very interested in the idea. And they said, OK, why don't you take the summer and go create some samples and come back in the fall and, you know, we could maybe work something out, you know. So I was still enrolled in school at the time, you know, and I brought the idea to my my mom and uh, my family back in San Francisco. And I said, hey, there's this opportunity where the showroom essentially will do all my press and sales and all I have to do essentially is create a collection. And so. My mom definitely challenged me and kind of asked a lot of questions. But in the end, you know, she was always very supportive of anything that I wanted to do and that I felt that I was determined and passionate about. When I have my mindset on something, it's very hard for me <laughs> to derail or go somewhere yeah. else. I, I always come back to a certain um, idea. Uh, so she allowed me to leave school. And I felt, you know, I presented the pros and cons to her and I said, you know, the worst thing that I could lose out on is time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I can always go back to school. and. Sure versus this is an opportunity that I feel like I just need to explore. And so um, we had $10,000 that she, you know, lent me and we started the business from that. And so what, you're 20 years old at this point? I'm 20 years old at this point. And I, um, so I created the samples, went back to New York. The funny thing is, the showroom that you know was very interested in my idea by fall, they told me that one of their brands um, that was already in the portfolio was essentially working on the same thing. That was kind of like the first big surprise and obstacle that I wasn't really preparing for. But 
um, my sister-in-law at the time was also in between jobs and and offered to help and she you know she really kind of came in and was like you know what we'll figure this out you know we didn't have any mentor no really anyone that we could lean on you know I don't come from a family that was from this industry Mm -hmm. you know I'd like the only contacts that I had were through my internships and um, we decided we found out about this trade show that was in that was happening called designers and agents DNA and we decided to just get a booth there and see you know selling the collection ourselves. Um, also I shouldn't mention that you know we had called almost every showroom in the city up until this point no one would pick, nah, no one would pick up the phone no one would take our call and so we just kind of said let's just do it ourselves so and I would just imagine that like just thinking of this young kid and he's putting his name on something. I would imagine that a lot of people are like, who is Alexander <laughs> Wang? Who is this kid? Like, why, why do I ne- even need to be talking to yeah. him right now? Like, how do yeah. you, how did you deal with that? I think good thing is I have a very short term memory. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just kind of, you know, I take it with a grain of salt. And, you know, there were so many people constantly saying like, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. You don't know what you're doing. I think in a certain way that, prompted me and that encouraged me to want to prove them wrong, you know, and so yeah, I just, you know, of course there was many, many people kind of telling me, aside from the editor, that was really, you know, her name was Gloria Baum and I want to mention that because she was very, very supportive. She always supported you. So yeah, we we did it ourselves. Do you remember the first time you saw someone maybe on the street wearing your clothes? I do. It was one of our knitwear pieces and it had um, an image of a girl smoking on the back and uh, that was kind of one of the first pieces that I saw someone. Did it take off? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It was, um, I actually wore the piece also and I remember the first piece of press was someone photographed the back of my sweater. I was at some New York Fashion Week event and it was in the New York Times and someone photographed the back of it and kind of it was it wasn't even talking about the sweater it was just talking about the scene of the party yeah. you know or this event or that I was at but it was kind of like the big image of, <laughs> was of me standing at the party on my back and the picture yeah. of the sweater <laughs> so i feel like a, a lot of people will know you because i mean you ended up becoming like a, a celebrity yourself you became like one of uh, the favorite designers of like big musicians like whether it's kanye <laughs> or and like the kardashians for celebrities and stuff how did you how did you get introduced into that world and become part of it? Oh, God, I you know, for me I never really saw lines between creativity and people who are creative, people that I kind of, you know, I felt that I that I understood or that I wanted to learn from or that I was curious about. I always wanted to, you know, work with them, you know, and I think that's, you know, when you point out people like Kanye and, you know, whether it's him or Rihanna or whatever. I think it's the same thing. I think these silos of how musicians or designers or you know actors you know want to bracket themselves now it's kind of irrelevant Kanye has a clothing line you know Rihanna has a fragrance has a clothing line you know I think those kind of elements of what kind of categorize you are maybe too traditional you know or like irrelevant you know so I was always very immensely curious about pop culture as well you know things that I think influence and impact you know a generation that I felt like I was very much in tune with you know and wanted to relate to and so um, working with you know comedians and musicians and things on earlier campaigns and be able to tap into other conversations outside of just fashion was something that was always a big part of who we were as a brand and creating that community and that tribe of um, just people that we wanted to kind of you know be aligned with yeah so you were able to build a name for yourself, start getting these connections and projects. And then in 2012, Balenciaga approaches you and names you creative director. That stint lasted for 
three years. And I had read at that point that you were putting in like 12 hour days going back and forth between New York and Paris. What was life like at that time? Oh, gosh. It sounds stressful. It was a really, I have to say, incredible but difficult period in my life. You know, I had never really thought about um, designing for another brand. I never thought about working for another luxury group. But when the opportunity came, you know, it was a really big one. And I knew that because I was always very, very, I very much respected the house and uh, caring group that owns the house. And I thought, oh, you know, they're interested in investing in the brand. They're interested in me designing for this this incredible, you know, historic legacy. And I was like, I, I would be, let's let's hear them out, you know. And so I think hearing them out very quickly turned into me signing a contract in like 30 days. And and um, I remember when Mr. Pino told me the news in Paris, I was very, very shocked and I couldn't tell anyone. Um, but of course, you know, I had to kind of consult my closest friends and, you know, they all were like, you know, this is an incredible opportunity go for it. I think I always knew deep down inside that it was like me going to kind of grad school, you know, because I never really finished school. I never really got to work for another company. I wanted to see how I would be able to operate on a much higher level with a brand that had a lot of other categories and, you know, um, had a bigger platform to be able to speak to the industry. And so in that sense, you know, it really allowed me to see at a much higher level, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I think everyone acknowledges that as a creative, there's always a hierarchy of ideas. And, you know, do you give your your best ideas to the brand that has the bigger platform and better resources or the one that you really own yourself? So it was always this kind of internal struggle of what, oh, that's where I yeah. wanted to, you know, give my best output. And I realized that, you know, I, I wanted to come back home and I wanted to, you know, give my all to the brand that I had ownership over you know that I felt like the ideas and the, the the success of those ideas I would have ownership over it was just too much you couldn't give your full self to either you were being like torn apart from yeah it. I mean you know I was traveling again you know like two weeks every month you know so I would leave I had I didn't I didn't get a apartment in Paris on purpose I always stayed in hotels so like I would fly red eye Sunday night arrive in Paris you know 8 a.m. go back to the hotel change get to work at like 9 30 work all day until like 9 p.m. till like all week to like Friday and then take the red eye back to New York and spend the weekend in New York. It was like that for three years. Yeah. Yeah. So were you, were you just like, exhausted? I, was just, I was, I just got to the point where I was just in meetings and I was just like, I felt like I was just pushing pay, you know what I mean? And I wasn't even really able to kind of have brain space to think about. Cause I was literally like, I would have meetings, no joke every 30 minutes. I remember I would sit in a room in Paris and it would just be like teams coming in, like rolling rack, rolling rack out, rolling rack in. Okay, boards in, boards out. And it was just like, it almost like at a certain point, your your eyes and your, your thought process gets numbed, you know. So it was a very mutual decision to talk to Mr. Pinot and realize, you know, he knew as well that when, you know, I didn't kind of offer the brand for him to invest in that I wasn't locked in, you know for the end game you so know they would have a stake in the alexander win yeah i mean i label. think that's yeah. usual how those the strategic luxury houses you know they you know they if they put you in a house they want to know that you're there to really kind of grow that house for the long term you know like my brand was at a certain level where i wasn't going to shut down my brand you know um and it was a brand that i grew from the ground up it, we're coming up on our 15 year anniversary and i think we're very lucky to even have been in business for 15 years but you know the industry is changing drastically and i'm always thinking about who is our consumer versus just designing fashion you know and thinking about you know 
the greatest brands that have always inspired me when you think about Ralph or Calvin or, you know, these incredible American lifestyle brands. What does that new generation look of lifestyle brand look like coming out of America? You know what I mean? After the break, Alexander Wang returns full time to his own brand and he makes himself CEO. Stay with us. Next up, Impact CEO David Yovano reveals the secret to enterprise revenue growth in 2019. The trend in today's consumer behavior has created a crisis for traditional sales and marketing techniques. Buyers just don't trust salespeople or advertising today. This trend is causing enterprises to turn to partnerships as the next major channel for revenue growth. Partnerships today include influencers, apps, business-to-business partnerships, and traditional affiliates. With all these new emerging partnership types, it's just not scalable to discover, engage, and optimize them all manually. That's where Impact's Partnership Cloud comes in. Our software automates every step of the partnership process for over a thousand enterprise brands, from discovering new partners to the tracking and attribution of the value of every transaction. It even takes care of fraud protection and payment processing, and it gets results. Impact's most mature clients are driving more than 25% of their total revenue through partnerships and growing this new channel by more than 50%. Here's the bottom line. Partnerships enable enterprises to grow their overall revenue two times faster than their peers. To find out how Impact's Partnership Cloud can grow your revenue, visit impact.com forward slash business insider. We're back. In 2015, Alexander Wang dedicated himself full-time to his own fashion label and he decided he would be his own CEO. And to be really honest, it wasn't that I wanted to be CEO, it was that me and my family decided that I needed to kind of take control over the entire brand for a period of time where I could really understand all the ins and outs and the kind of the weaknesses as well as the strengths of the whole operational system of the brand so that as we were entertaining offers for investors to come in, I should preface it by saying that my family was always very supportive in the sense that when you, when the time is right and we feel like we want to invite in outside expertise Because it was a family business. Yes, it was a family business. The family was more than willing to take a step back, but they wanted to make sure that I really understood what the infrastructure was like so that when we're looking at or having these conversations with investors, we knew what we would be looking for. I felt like I needed to really understand the business as a whole and not just like, okay, like, you know, this is what we do in design, this is what we do in marketing, you know, but really the the whole scale of what the business meant on a yeah. global level. So, yeah, so you were saying that like Balenciaga was like, grad school so basically being ceo that was kind of like business school yeah (laughs) Yeah. it was like business school (laughs) yeah it was hard i mean i have to say you know it was a hard year and i will also preface this by saying when i took the role of ceo i had already started the search for a ceo i wanted to take that time as i was learning to be able to find you know in interviews and as i'm kind of meeting with you know um, other candidates being able to kind of ask them questions that were like fresh in my mind that i was learning so yeah, that was a yeah, it was a short-lived but um, a very educational <laughs> and informative time um, of my career, but difficult for sure. I mean, how do you know how to balance like your time and your energy into the business side of things with the creative side of things? How do you figure that out? You know, it's funny you ask that because I was thinking about this, and I don't know if it's just being Chinese, <laughs> not to say that, but like, I always really think about the business aspect 
tied into the creative decisions. You know, I always say to my team, you know, we, as a brand and in our culture, we always try to apply creative thinking to business decisions and business acumen to kind of creative, you know, process. And I really flip that back and forth in every project that I work on. You know, I think about the big picture. You know, when I work on a collaboration or I work on, you know, any kind of partnership, I'm always thinking, okay, what is the end objective? You know, what are we trying to create? What's the concept? Who's the customer profile? What's the price point? What's the distribution model? You know what I mean? I'm not just being like, okay, I'm going to design this t-shirt and then I'm going to give it to them and then like have them figure it out. That's never been the way that I work. And I think that was probably also one of the reasons why my time in Paris was difficult because in those kind of structures, you are put a bit into a box, you know, Mm -hmm. where I was not used to being in a box. I was very much used to being part of the whole conversation. Could you give maybe an example of here's a project that you're considering or starting and it's like that business and creative side, are they're just linked. You can't even separate them. So I've been wanting to do underwear for a very long time. And, you know, I've talked at length in many different partners and internally and how we could really kind of tap into this category. And, you know, it was a category that's very much owned by some very large companies and brands, but it hasn't been disrupted in a very long time. You know, when you think about Victoria's Secret owning, you know, that kind of the sexier, more lingerie kind of category and Calvin Klein owning the kind of the sportier, you know, logo driven kind of. So I knew that if I was to sign a licensee deal that I wasn't going to be about going into, you know, a wholesale distribution model that was essentially in the U.S. not really, you know, having a big light at the end of the tunnel. So um, I was thinking like, okay, well, it needs to be a new, you know, a new conversation, a new concept. And I thought about, you know, who are the players in this space and I have a long-standing relationship with Mr. Yanai at Uniqlo. We collaborated essentially 11 years ago when I first came out. He's the owner of um, Fast Retailing. And, um, and I thought, well, they have this incredible proprietary innovation around heat tech and airism. You know, they've never been able to apply that technology or innovation into so it's their underwear. Material. Yes, it's yeah. their material. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, let, why don't we marry that concept with this idea of innerwear, but in a way that can be worn, you know, all day, you know, to the gym, under layered underneath pieces on their own, and they love the idea. And so, you know, I was trying to take a category that I really had a lot of interest in and push it into a new conversation that, you know, was really innovating the dialogue around, you know, underwear. Um, and it was a it was a new distribution model for me. You know what I mean? Immediately, we would be put into over a thousand doors. And I knew that the price point was going to be right, accessible, you know, accessible, and it needed to be. And and so, yeah, it's been a really kind of incredible yeah. collaboration so far. Yeah. So it's like I feel like you've gotten to a point now where you could kind of break the the rules, like the so-called rules. I mean, even last year when you pulled out of Fashion Week. So to kind of get perspective on it, so it's February and September when almost all designers, right? That's Correct. when they show have Correct. their shows. Um, and you weren't the first to do this, but you decided that you're going to go on your own schedule. What went behind that decision? So part of this decision, again, it wasn't overnight, but we had talked a lot about how can we address the consumer better? How can we be more efficient with the consumer? And as how opposed they, to the industry As itself? opposed to the industry. And, you know, we were making a lot of direct-to-consumer shifts in how we were replatforming our website and shifting kind of the delivery model of our um, of our collection. And, you know, Fashion Week is always labeled a season, you know, fall, winter, spring, summer, 2020, et cetera, et cetera. And it's... I 
even always was confused about the seasonality, you know what I mean? Let alone a consumer who's watching now, you know, having the access, looking at fashion shows and then not having to wait, you know, six months before that product yeah. is sitting on the floor. And also the fact that, you know, we have a global brand and that, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter doesn't really resonate the same in New York as it does to Australia at the same time. You know, so we thought, well, let's take away the label of seasonality from our collections and let's just title it by the drops, the months that they're dropping. So this is our September delivery. This is our October delivery. This is our December. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And really message it around cultural events or what's culturally going on around you know what are people shopping for in December? You know they're shopping for gift giving. They're shopping for holiday. What are people shopping for in January? They're it's New Year, New You. You know they're kind of rebuilding their kind of self esteem. You know going back into the gym. And so building the product strategy around um, that kind of thinking and building the collection and the drop cadence around that as well. So everything kind of really leads from product, but restructuring how we sell the collection. You know, we are still a very heavily wholesale weighted company. So, you know, we can't really make that switch completely, but we felt that by taking away the idea of labels, you know, taking ourselves out of New York Fashion Week, being able to show the collection essentially during pre-collection market, how the industry knows it, um, we're able to get what people see on runway um, essentially two months earlier. Uh, we're able to just be a lot more kind of earlier in our deliveries and so we're not shipping things as people are seeing you know go, having sit, sitting on the floor for two months before it goes on sale so yeah i would imagine like with that you could have an advantage of being more consumer facing and tapping into like buying trends but uh i feel like the risk there too would just be that even if you thought that like the fashion week that's like a strange schedule that's still when everyone is collected yeah. at the same time. So yeah. how do you weigh that risk? Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. I also feel that, you know, for the big part of fashion shows now, when you think about the ones that are really play on the big scale, you know, the Dior's, the Vuitton's, you know, they're most likely paying all of the celebrities to sit in the front row, the edit, flying the editors out to, you know, whatever exotic location to kind of participate and cover the show. But most everyone now in terms of who, you know, consumers, the audience that just wants those genuinely interested in the brand they're looking at it on online you know through social media and so we realized that you know in order to have an event let's not call it even a fashion show it needs to be entertainment you need to build content around it that people are not just watching models walking down the runway because you can see that going to vogue.com you know so um when we made this shift you know we implemented like a whole host and live stream kind of element to our show. So it really became like a live entertainment as well as kind of all the content that we would shoot around the show, like behind the scenes, backstage with the models while we have the talent there on set so that it's a moment of, you know, entertainment, you know, and fashion shows aren't really about the clothes anymore. So it's about the brand exercising their 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 message around what they want to say with this community and this kind of around the content. Yeah. Well, I guess that that's like another thing that you do that would be unorthodox. So like by the time that um, our audience sees or listens to this, you're going to have your show at Rockefeller Center. Yeah. And no one has ever done that before. Um, and that reminds me too, like when you had a show in Bushwick, Brooklyn, like that hadn't been done before. And I'd seen some, some people were maybe mad that there was a lot of traffic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, some people couldn't get in. So it's like when you're taking risks yeah. to be different, how do you decide like, okay, this is something worth trying or maybe people haven't done this for a reason? Yeah. We as a brand have always wanted to push the boundaries in how we can move the conversation forward. You know, if if everyone is just sitting around with status quo, then nothing's ever going to change. You know, and I think unless you challenge that, 
you know, there's always risks involved, you know, and I think, you know, we recognize that and we stomach it and we go with it. But, you know, I think that will always be a part of the brand. Of course, the editors were not happy that they got to see it second <laughs> and that it was in Brooklyn. And I think we definitely there was learnings from it, you know, in terms of operational efforts and logistics around On how traffic to do it better. and yeah. do it better. Yeah. And I think this time with, you know, Rockefeller, what's exciting is that there's never been a show where literally everyone is invited. We've done, you know, public shows where, you know, we invite like 150 people, you know, who go to our store first, get tickets. But this is like Rockefeller Plaza. You know, there's an invited portion for the industry, but essentially around the, the entire mezzanine, you know, anyone who's just hears about it, for wants public, to come, yeah. can participate. And it's going to be really exciting because, yeah, there hasn't ever been a fashion show there. And it's such an iconic New York location. And this collection is really about... Um, giving back to New York and about kind of a tribute to American sportswear and all the pioneers that really kind of paved the way for me. And so like even on that note, like when you're out doing things the way that you want to, and maybe some people will be critical of that. And and I feel like in the fashion industry, from what I've seen, like it seems that people can be really vicious when (laughs) when things aren't going to like their expectations. So how do you even know who, who do you listen to? Like who's criticism matters or whose praise matters for that measure like how do you balance all of this the The consumer consumer. i think at the end you know i feel that if the audience and the community and the consumer that i'm trying to speak to understands what i'm trying to do you know at time you're never going to be able to make everyone happy but i think if you're able to address and learn from certain mistakes and be able to kind of provide better for the consumer you know and a lot of the times that they just want to be involved they want to be included they want to be heard you know and that's whether it's on product it's whether on the experience whether being you know included in the experience i think that's the most important so you have to approach business from your audience's perspective the rest is just noise you know and i think there's definitely you know i don't want to bite the hand that feeds me you know what i mean because i grew up in this interest and was very supportive you know a lot of the organizations and the you know the editors and the buyers of course you know are very important to our business but yeah at the end of the day I think for everyone's sake, it's the consumer who's shopping at those stores, who's reading those magazines. You know what I mean? They're they're the most important. When I think of the industry, it kind of seems that success would be relevancy because there are only like a handful of brands that have lasted like seemingly forever and the rest, maybe they come and go. Yeah. So for you, how do you think of relevancy? And then how do you think of success? Are they tied together? Are they separate? I do think they are tied together, but not necessarily under the same circumstances. And I say that in the sense that right now, I'm much more interested in consumer than I am just fashion. And what the consumer wants from us as a brand sometimes isn't just apparel and clothes. You know, it could be other categories, things in the wellness space, things in the entertainment space, such as, you know, festivals, you okay. know, events, things yeah. like that. Um, I think other ways where the brand kind of has resonance amongst a community is where I'm really interested in kind of moving into. Is the way that you define success now, yeah. 15 years in, different from when you were just starting out? Yes. Yes. There's a huge part of me. I just want to create beautiful things, you know, but I want to create beautiful things that really leave impact, you know, and create things that I think people really resonate with and that mean something. Building meaningful work and meaningful relationships is the most important thing for me. And I think that's one of the things that I've realized and as I've matured, you know, become more clear in my head of what that, you know, equates to. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. 
Our show is produced by Jennifer Siegel and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. I'm Rich Filoni. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know which guests you've enjoyed and who you want to hear from next. We'll be back next month with a new episode of This is Success. But before we go, I asked Alexander Wang for some fashion advice. I think it's really about knowing your body type and kind of how to wear certain kinds of archetypes or materials that kind of exemplify your attitude and your sensibility. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio. This episode has been brought to you by Impact. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.